Well, it's a new year. It's a new series. So uh, you can turn your Bibles to Genesis. We're going to be in the book of Genesis for a little while. Uh, If you are joining us online, just a quick reminder, uh, we are going to be doing a communion, celebrating communion together. So you can get those elements ready. And so that way you can take that uh, with us here as we get to the end of our service. Um, I don't know about you, but in a new year, I generally start asking questions for myself, for my family, for my goals, for our church. Questions like, so where are we going anyway? Uh, What is our focus? What are we looking to accomplish? And so I thought it would be a good place to start in the beginning of this message just to share with you some of that. Why do we exist as a church? Do you know why we exist as a church? It's on the doors up just above you as you walk into the sanctuary. It's our mission statement. Why don't you put it on the screen, and why don't we say it together, okay? To introduce people to Jesus Christ and to help them follow him. That's why we're here. It's why we exist as a church. And in order to do that, in order to be about the mission that God has given us, it requires us to be a church on the move. We can't be a church that's just kind of sitting and soaking, a church that's, you know, rallying the, the, around the wagons and looking in our rearview mirror and just thinking about the past, who's just okay with status quo. No, we need to be a church that's going somewhere, that's actively pursuing the mission that God has given us, that is empowered by the Holy Spirit like the first century church, church that, that really changed the world and turned the world on its ear. That's the kind of church that God has called us to be. And so to be a church on the move, we have three initiatives over the next three plus years to help us pursue that. The first one is building our faith, which we'll talk about in a moment. The second is reaching our community, by which we mean that we are committed to mobilizing our church to demonstrate and declare the gospel message of Jesus. We want to do that in our community. Um, From February to August, we are going to make that the focus of our church. We'll be launching that and next month during Missions Month and pursuing that through um, Go Week um, in, the, in the spring and lots of other ways to really get us out of our seats, to equip us, to challenge us, to really make a difference in our community and share our faith with the people that we are uh, in relationship with or around in our neighborhood. So that'll be the focus. And then the third one is shaping the future, which if you were with us back in November at the congregational meeting, you heard a little bit about that. Uh, We are repurposing this building to align with our ministry needs. Uh, There's going to be some some renovations so that we can introduce the generations to Jesus using our facilities. Facilities facilitate ministry, and so it's important about our building. Um, And so more about that as as that unfolds later this year, about the plans and the details and timelines and funding. But I want to go back to the first one. I want to go back to building our faith. What we mean by that is that we are building resilient disciples of Jesus. And we're doing so in an increasingly post-Christian culture. Now, what does that mean anyway, increasingly post-Christian culture? Well, what I mean by that is we live in a Western society that is primarily dominated by modern secularism. Now, modern secularism has uh, maybe five or six tenets to it, or at least some of the ones that I want to share with you today. So you can understand, we, we live in a Western culture that no longer sees Christianity as the primary worldview, but it's been replaced by modern secularism. This is the catch-all phrase that describes if you 
uh, interview the average person the way they think about the world. And so it's dominated with a few fundamental thoughts. First of all, it's a story, it's a narrative that our world seeks to tell that removes God from the center of the society. In removing God from the center of society, uh, human beings now become the locus of authority. That is the authority on this earth, the sovereignty on this earth is the self. We are at the center of our own universe. There is no absolute capital T truth. There's only little truths of what you and I might morally think is relative to our own lives or whoever's in power gets to decide. It is a belief that believes that the world is essentially an accident, a, a universal accident formed by time and chance. And because of that, there's no inherent meaning in the universe. There's no inherent identity in the universe. So therefore, the goal of modern secularism, if I could summarize, it would be this. It is to try to free the individual from the chains of societal, institutional, or religious um, uh, boundaries or restrictions, constraints, to truly be free to self-create your own meaning and your own identity. That's really the objective of what we're calling... um, modern secularism. Of course, the caveat, of course, of the self-creating your own meaning and identity is the caveat as long as you don't hurt anyone else according to how modern secularism defines hurt, of course. So all of this, does this make sense? Does this sound familiar? It should sound familiar. If you're paying attention to the world around you, this is really how the world thinks. It could be summarized in in the mantras of you do you, Do what makes you happy. Uh, Don't let anyone tell you who you are. You are whoever you feel yourself to be. This is the modern story being told. So my question to you is, how's that modern story going? How's How's it working out? Is it creating a better story for people? Is it creating a happier world, a more meaningful world? Well, I'll let you decide that for yourself, what I would say is that becoming a resilient disciple, what that means for us is believing, truly believing and taking in for ourselves and being able to articulate and and defend a much better story. We have a much better story to tell, a better story about the world, a better story about the universe and beginnings, a better story about humanity, not just because it's far more helpful and beautiful, I believe, but because it's true and because it works in reality. And so, in order to understand this story, we need to go back to the beginning. We need to go back to our origin stories. We need to go back to the beginning in Genesis because it's in Genesis that we begin to find answers to some of the most fundamental questions of the universe. Questions like, well, where did all this come from? Who are we anyway? Why are we here? What went wrong? And can it be fixed? Is there a solution? Is there any hope? Genesis begins to answer these questions. So welcome to Origin Stories. Welcome to the book of Genesis. We'll be in this book for eight months. Uh, Not all at once. Don't worry. We're going to break it up into into bits, into pieces. Okay, so we'll go slow in the first uh, maybe eight weeks or so of the series. And then we'll move much faster in the summer as we look through the narratives of the book of Genesis, okay? So where to start? That's a good question. Where do we start? Well, how about we start 
in the beginning. This thing makes sense. So Genesis 1.1, I, I promise not every message will we only look at one verse. Uh, but today we're primarily looking at one verse, Genesis 1.1, God's first words to humanity In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, some of us have said that and read that so many times, we almost fly by it, but it's so profound. Even if it's simple, it's so profound that we need to sit in it. We need to unpack that and the implications in our world as it is today um, as we open up God's story. So let's break it down into two parts. First of all, we're going to look at the in the beginning God. Let's pause there. Let's look at those four words. In the beginning, God. The first four words of the Bible place an immediate emphasis on God. Well, right there, our story is different than the modern story, isn't it? Because our story doesn't begin with self. (laughs) Sorry, it's not really about you. It's about God. This is God's story that we get to be a part of. God is at the center of his story. And notice also, it doesn't say in the beginning, God and everything else was created, does it? It says what? God was already there at the beginning. He preexisted the beginning. He always was before space and time. God is the only eternally uncreated creator, which means that every single thing finds its source in God alone, everything. So we might say, therefore, that God is our ultimate origin story. God is our ultimate origin story. The beginning of every single question that you can ask, questions about our existence or our purpose or our identity or even our bodies, begin with God. That is where it all begins. Now, again, this separates us from the modern story. The modern story cannot begin with, in the beginning, God. And so the answers to some of these fundamental questions have to find some other story. In the beginning, they might say, was space and dark matter and energy. Or in the beginning was the multiverse. Or in the beginning was, you know, other life forms that, you know, uh, planted and populated the seed for humanity in this world. Or whatever it might be. Another story. Of course, the problem with all those other stories is pretty fundamental, which is no matter how far you go, you can go back and back and back into infinite regression and you still haven't answered the fundamental question. You don't have an answer to what began everything until you have an uncreated creator, until you have an uncaused first cause. And so scripture actually gives a better story to the beginning. So let's not slip past this reality too quickly. Modern secularism claims that humans are sovereign. We, are, we have authority over our world, over our time, over our business and our body. But scripture's story is very different. As Abraham uh, Kuyper famously once said many years ago, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which God in Christ Jesus our Lord does not exclaim, mine, mine. God starts his story with mine. We are God's tenants. God is the landlord of everything. And so the implications of this, we're going to unpack over the coming weeks. So origin story starts with God. Okay, second part of this message is that God created. God created 
the heavens and the earth. Now, when it comes to creation, if you've uh, grown up in the church, um, it seems that most Christians really get caught up in the how questions of creation, when I think the far more important questions are the why of creation. And I'll, I'll give you this illustration I got from another pastor. Imagine somebody at Christmas gave you a gift and you unpack it. And inside is some kind of machine, but you don't know what the machine is. Your first questions are not, how did this machine come to me? And uh, how long did it take to make this machine? And what parts uh, were used and what process was used in order to make this machine? These are not your first questions, are they? The more important questions are, why do I have this machine? What is it for? Why did he give it to me? And then you begin to ask, well, how do I use it so I don't blow up my household? And I use it as it's supposed to be used, right? It's the why that is more important than the how. And I think the same thing is true when it comes to the story of creation. The why is far more important than the how. Now, we are going to talk about the how. In fact, we're going to do it now. But then we're going to close with the why, all right? So let's talk a little bit about the how of creation. How did God create? Well, we see in Genesis that God used words. Do you notice that as you read through Genesis chapter 1? Ten times in Genesis 1 is the phrase, then God said, and it was so. God spoke the world into existence. Now, let's not fly by that. That is incredibly unique to all the other creation or origin stories out there. This is the unique story that the Bible gives us. You know, there's other ancient Near Eastern creation stories. There's other ancient texts that we have uncovered in archaeology around the same time as the Bible that gives us other creation accounts. The Enuma Elish of the Babylonians um, for, is just one example of that. And in these other creation stories, what you will find is that uh, the world was created through chaos and war. A war between the gods. And uh, as Enum Elish says, the, the, the world was essentially formed out of the body and the blood of a slain god. Another creation account says the, that the, the world was formed out of uh, the carcass of a giant sea creature. Okay? So as you read through these, the, the sense that you get is that the creation is sort of an, an afterthought at best. Creation is, is sort of a byproduct of war and violence and chaos, unplanned, as it were. So that's the ancient creation story. It's the ancient origin story. But the modern uh, origin story is even worse. The, 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 the modern story is that it's completely unplanned. In fact, there, it's completely unintentional. It's not a byproduct of anything other than time and chance. We are a collocation of atoms and energy. That is it. There is no inherent meaning in the universe. You know, things like love and beauty and awe and, and conviction, they, these aren't real things. This is the origin story of the modern world. The late atheist Richard Dawkins said that when you look at certain scenery and you think that scenery is beautiful is just because your ancestors believed that there was food out there somewhere on the horizon. And that particular neurological features that helped your ancestors survive came down to you and that's why you think 
It's beautiful. Okay? How about love? You know, you, you love your husband or your, or your wife or your significant other. Well, that's not, that's not real. That's just a conditioned response that our genes have programmed in order to propagate our DNA faster than our peers. Okay, you tracking with that? So that's, that's the world of, a, of a, the new way or the new story of thinking about inherited meaning. So ladies, imagine you uh, and your boyfriend are taking a stroll in Longwood Gardens and it's a beautiful spring day. Everything just looks perfect and suddenly he drops to a knee. You're saying, oh my goodness, this is it the moment? This is incredible. Can't wait. Oh, I've been waiting for this. And he gets to his knee and he says to you, I took you here because your monkey brain has neurological connections here because you think that there might be food that you can gather here. And my genes have determined that you are useful for the propagation of my DNA. And so, would you marry me? Ladies, run as fast as you can and do not look back. That story's not gonna fly. Sorry, Dawkins, she's not gonna buy it. Why? Because it doesn't fit with our reality. We know better. We have a better story. See, into the passive, accidental, cold ambivalence of both the ancient origin stories and the modern origin stories, the Bible has a resounding no. It's not an accident. This world's not an accident. You are not an accident. The personal God spoke everything intentionally into existence and said, it is good. Not a result of chance, but purposeful words. Not a passive byproduct of violence. Intentional, active love. Not randomly, but with definitive clarity. He spoke and it was so. And what that means is the beauty of a sunset or the beauty of Longwood Gardens or the sounds of the ocean when you're there by the sea. Those are beautiful, not because of our DNA. They're beautiful because God created it and he is a beautiful creative artist. It's beautiful because it is beautiful. It means that the love that you feel isn't from your biological DNA passed down from your ancestors. It's your spiritual DNA from a loving creator. Because God is love. That's why we love. It's a better story. It works in reality. And it's true. God spoke. That's the first thing we need to know about how. The second thing we learn about how God created is notice that he used order. He used order. As you look through Genesis 1 in the creation account, you'll see an incredibly structured, ordered, symmetrical, rhythmic creation account. I'll show you, let me show you a chart that helps think through this. Uh, we might say that, that the, the order here is a, a form and fill kind of structure, a rhythm. Uh, day one, two, and three, God forms the light from the darkness, the sea from the sky, the land from sea and the vegetation. And then we see God fills that which he has formed in uh, day four, five, and six. So lighting the sky, creatures in the air and the sea, the creatures and humanity are filled in the planet in which 
he created. And after each of these, there's this rhythm, there's a, a, a poetic nature about it of God said, it was so, it was good, day, you know, morning, evening and morning, day one, day two, day three. Do you see the pattern, the, the poetry of it? It's a structure that God used. God used order. Now, what's really interesting to me is God didn't have to use order. God could have just like spoke or he could have, you know, and everything could have existed. Just like everything, just there. He didn't do that, did he? He used an order. He used a process. He used time to create things in a process, in a pattern. Things came first and then second and then third. And why is that? Because God is a God of order. God is a God who uses time and puts things together. And that's important to know because that's how he operates in the Bible. Does God just tell us everything about him all at once? No, he progressively reveals things in a time-bound, ordered structure. How about in how Jesus came to us, the gospel, the redeemer came to us? He lived a life up to into his 30s. He lived in a time and place and a structure in order to fulfill God's role. Hey, how about when you came to Christ, if you're a believer, did God immediately zap you with full maturity and all knowledge? No. What did he do? He worked through a time and a structure and a pattern to bring you to where you are. God is a God of order. He uses time as an agent to accomplish his means. This is who God is, and it tells us something about his use of time, because time for God is a tool. It's a tool. So now we begin to ask a lot of the more specific questions, don't we? When we start talking about time and creation and days, lots of questions, lots of debates arise, you know? Are these 24-hour days and a literal interpretation, as some would suggest? Are these more epochs? Are they long periods of time? Uh, more flexible use of the word yom, which is the Hebrew word for day. If it is flexible, could it allow for natural processes that could have taken millions of years? And then there's a question as to whether Genesis 1 is even meant to be read as a chronological time, uh, kind of, or, or like a science or a history at all. Is Genesis 1, as some would say, uh, ancient Hebrew poetry? And so therefore, um, some would say, in that case, it's, you have a literary license to convey imagery without the burden of time. Or is Genesis 1 conveying something else completely? Like author John Walton in his book, The Lost World of Genesis 1, would argue that, that this creation account is primarily not a creation account of material creation, but rather the functions of God's creation as a temple in which God dwells. Now, I have officially lost some of us here. They're like, what? What are you talking about up there? Some of us were even suggesting that there might be a different way to interpret this. You are a little bit nervous, and that's okay. So let me say a few things about this. What comes to mind uh, to me when we start talking about these questions is what God said to Job. Do you remember his conversation to Job at the end of the book of Job? Uh, Job is questioning God, and at the end, God questions him. And it says, God says to Job, who is this who darkens counsel by words without wisdom? Prepare yourself like a man, and I will question you, and you will answer me. Would not want to be Job in that moment. And what is the question he asked? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have 
understanding. So here's my point. I wasn't there. And you weren't either. And God saw fit to only give us a few hundred words to describe it. And so I believe this calls for humility. We can have our strong convictions, absolutely. And I would encourage strong convictions. But what I would say to you is hold those with grace and compassion. Hold those with grace and compassion with others. We have a value here as a church. We are Bible-centered, graciously orthodox. We want to make room on secondary issues. And this leads me to my second thought, which is I would exhort you not to allow a rigid interpretation of the how of creation to become divisive or to cause somebody else to stumble. I know a bright young man who loved science, who left his faith because he was in a Christian community who told him that the only faithful way to interpret Genesis 1 is a literal 24-hour chronological view and that the earth is 6,000 years old. And if you don't believe that, you can't believe the rest of the Bible and you can't be a Christian. And that shipwrecked his faith because he felt forced to choose what he saw as science over the Bible. He's forced into a corner. Friends, I believe that the purpose of Genesis 1 wasn't meant to be met, read as modern science. I believe that the purpose of Genesis isn't a biology lesson. I mean, think about it. If it were a biology lesson, would Moses and Abraham in their time even understood anything that God said? I believe that true science, which is an ever-changing discipline and a collection of disciplines of discoveries and theories, and faith ought to work together, not be pitted against one another. So, in all saying that, I'm going to disappoint some of you today because I'm not going to go into my perspective on it. Honestly, I don't think it's the most important question for today, but I have written an article and I have written about my perspective, so you will know it if you uh, look at our e-news this week. Um, I have an article on there, so you can go read it for the 10 of you who actually care. Uh, read that. Um, I want to spend some time talking about the why, all right? Why God created. Now, we're going to spend the next three weeks unpacking this question. So I'm not going to say everything that we need to know about this question right off the top. But I believe Genesis 1 really hints at it, it hints strongly the answer of why we have been created. Let me read Genesis 1, 1 to 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Who's the Spirit of God? The Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit. And this is, hovering isn't some kind of force, some impersonal force. This word in Scripture in the Old Testament is only used to describe uh, a, a mother bird hovering and protecting its nest or its children, its young. This is the only way this word's used. It's a personal, relational word. This is the person of the Holy Spirit he's talking about here. So we see God, we might say God the Father. We see the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. And verse 3, and God, what? Said. Now, if you were with us this Advent season and you walked through uh, John 1, the prologue, you know who is it that is the agent of God's creation? 
Who is it? Is the word of God who spoke all things into existence. And who is that word of God? That word of God is Jesus Christ himself, the Son, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. All three intimately involved in the creation of everything. And we get to verse 26. It says, and then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. Let me ask you a question. Who is he talking to? Who's God talking to? There's no one that exists on the planet yet. So he's talking to the angels. Are we made in the likeness of angels? The Bible says, no, we're not made in the likeness of angels. We're made in the likeness of God. So who is God talking to? He's talking to himself within the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit in a loving communion together at creation. This is so essential. So there's, there's, this blows my mind to even think about it, but I'll try to put a few words around this, that the triune God existed in perfect love and relationship in eternity long before creation, which means that love was and is and always will be at the center of who God is and in his creative purpose. Creation, let me say it this way, creation flows out of the loving relationships within the Trinity. Creation flows out of the loving relationships within the Trinity. God invites us to join him in the loving relationship with the Trinity forever. And ultimately in the renewed creation when heaven comes down to earth as described at the end of the story in Revelation 21 and 22. See, when God is creating the earth, when he's creating the skies and the seas and the plants and the animals, over and over again, he says, it is good. Now, is this the father inspecting the work of the son, saying, oh, does everything measure up on the specs? Yep, it's good. Is that what's happening? No. When he says it's good, he's saying, it is good. It is delightful. I take pleasure in it. It glorifies me. He sings over his creation. It is good. He's talking about enjoyment. Just like when we, when we delight in the splendor and majesty and the power and the beauty of creation, God did so at creation. And he certainly, especially at the apex of his creation, humanity whom he made in his image. He says, it is very good. I delight in you. I love you. I take pleasure in you. This is our origin story. It's a better story that we get to share. Now the problem is, we know the problem, don't we? The problem is Genesis 3 is coming. Genesis 3 is coming. We're not going to get there for a few weeks, but Genesis 3 is coming. And what happens in Genesis, Genesis 3 is that mankind rebels against the creator. And in doing so, the image of God is marred in us. The, the, the good gaze of God is marred in us. We are separated from him, the Bible says. Death enters into this world. We become a glorious mess. Great capacity for showing the glory of God and yet messing everything up. Dysfunctional at our core. That's a problem. We live in a post-Genesis 3 world. We have to ask the question, what will fix all of this? 
You know, there's a longing deep inside every human soul. And the, the longing, what our souls need more than anything else, is we need our maker to look at us and say, you are good. You know what our soul needs? I take pleasure. I delight in you. That's what every human soul needs. Now, modern secularism will tell us, no, 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 everything's fine. You're good. I'm good. We're all good. There's no such thing as sin. We're all good. But we know better, don't we? We know our own reality. We know when we look in the mirror. We know that when we look at ourselves and we see our faults and our failures and the things that we wish we didn't do, but we do it anyway, and the hurt and destruction we have and the, 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 all of it, we know better. We know we're not good. It's why we've been running as humanity. It's why we run away. It's why we hide to get away from God and his gaze, just like the first humans did. It's why we try to cover ourselves up like the first humans did. We try to cover ourselves up with God's creation, with good things, with good deeds, with good religion, or with a good life to make ourselves feel better and good and worthy. Or we look to a man or a woman, or we look to a good, the good, we look to a parent or a boss or the internet to tell us that we're good. Good luck with that. And none of these things stick. You know, none of it really scratched the soul itch that we have. We know what is true, and we still desire to hear from our Creator, you are good. What will solve this problem? How can we be restored to God so that he can look at us and say those words that our soul deeply longs to hear, that you are good? The answer, friends, and this is the great story we get to share is that our first origin story, our birth begins with God as creator, but our second origin story, our rebirth, begins with God as our redeemer, Jesus Christ. See, Genesis points to Jesus. The word who is God and was God and was with him in the beginning, the word became what? Flesh. Flesh. Jesus went to the cross Jesus was unmade at the cross so that we can be made new. Jesus was marred beyond human recognition so that we can be called beautiful. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might be called the righteousness of God. So that God can look at every single one of us in Jesus Christ through the eyes of Jesus Christ and not see all of our faults and failures and everything we see and he can say, you are good. I delight in you. I long to be with you forever and ever. This is the better story. This is how it begins, friends. What story, what story has captured your heart? What story has captured your imagination that enables you to act out in this world in a way that shows the glorious image of his creation? This takes us to the communion table today because it was at this communion table and what this represents. It represents the new creation. It represents what Jesus had to go through in order to make us new, that Jesus took on our sin so that we could be called good before the Lord forever and ever.